Good morning. I'm Ben. Now, lots of you might not know me, actually. I'm one of the pastors here. And I've been called off the bench this week, actually, because Herdy, Herdy's a close contact, okay? And he was meant to be preaching this sermon today, but can't do it. So if you are here looking forward to hearing Andrew preach, you just need to lower your expectations right now, okay? It's just Ben. It's just Ben. Someone said with me preaching, they said, maybe it's a good Sunday to check out another, another church. So um, thanks for that one. So lower your expectations, not hurdy, but, but we do actually get to do something very special this week. Because we're sitting in between, we're sitting in between summer series that we've just had, where we've seen time and time again that Christ is the centre of Christianity. Now, what is Christianity? We've seen that constantly. And then in term one this year, we're kicking off this great series on John 5 to 11. Uh, you know, those, the four eyewitness biographies of Jesus right at the start of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We're getting back into John, kicking off in, uh, next week particularly. And I've been asked, uh, this sermon, it's, it's getting us ready for that. And the particular thing I've been asked to preach on today is Jesus' divinity, the godness of Jesus. That this mere human, he gets called, the one who was spat on and eventually crucified, that this mere human is not merely a human, but he is the one and only true and living God. So just as Christ is central to Christianity, this topic of Christ's divinity has been central to the history of Christian thought. Our best minds Our most committed theologians have given themselves to help us clearly see what's been written here in the Bible for us the whole time. In the early centuries after Jesus, the churches actually gave years and decades to councils and meetings of leaders to refute errors about the divinity of Christ, to clarify and crystallise our understanding of the truth. So much work's been done, so much research into the Bible even philosophical work, thinking about the implications of the divinity of Christ. Centuries, thousands of years worth of work. And the end goal of all of this work has always been, and it must always be, worship. That Christians would worship the Son as we worship the Father. That we would confess, not just with our lips, but with our whole lives, our whole selves, that we would confess the one and same Christ throughout the centuries. So today we're going to marvel at the majesty of the Son. We're going to see Him, we're going to adore Him, we'll enjoy Him. So let me raise those expectations back up again. No hurdy this morning, but we're going to bask in Jesus' glory. I want to fill up your life from the one who has life in Himself. If you've joined us from the summer series, I'm probably going to be answering questions that you don't even have yet. But stick with us, because one day those questions will mean everything to you. You'll care about them deeply. And whatever, whatever glimpse of Christ you can have now will only do you good for the rest of your life. So, so normally we, we preach through one passage after another, through a book of the Bible. I know we haven't done that in summer series, Um, But we will do it for the rest of the term starting next week because you want to listen to God in the way that he speaks to us, just one bit after another. 
But today we're going to be looking at a lot of different Bible passages to try and build as complete a picture of Christ as we can. And I'm going to have all of them come up on the screen. Normally we want you to just look at them in your own Bible, uh, bring your Bible, use it to practice reading it for yourself, but because we're going to be flicking around everywhere, we'll have them on the screen as well. Some of the passages I've picked are going to give us real clarity. Okay? They're going to build into our minds categories of thinking and understanding, the Bible's categories of thinking about the Son. Because we don't think in the same categories as Scripture normally. We don't normally think about an invisible God who is spirit. Life doesn't teach us to think about the invisible things. We don't often think about an eternally begotten Son. For us, begetting sons always happens in time. You didn't have a child, then you did have a child. Begetting for us is inseparable from time. So how can the Son be eternally begotten? We just don't have the categories, naturally, to think about these things. So I've picked a bunch of passages that will give us real clarity about those things. We've got some hard work to do there, because the categories just won't want to fit in our minds, naturally. But then, once we've got those categories... We can turn to other parts of the Bible, which just assume those categories, and they make the theology sing. And not just for this sermon, but for the rest of your life. As you keep reading the Bible, you'll be better equipped to read all of these passages about Jesus through the lens of the Bible's own categories, interpreting the Bible through the Bible. So we'll do both of those things. We'll do some hard work, and we'll, we'll let the Word of God just sing for us. So I'm going to pray in just a moment, because we've got some high hopes there. But before we do, I've got a great little quote to whet your appetites from a Christian thinker named Thomas Goodwin, who was one of the Puritans, if you know your church history. He'd been reading Bible passages about the divinity of Christ, and he's he's realising what it means for Jesus' infinite love. He says, If there were infinite worlds made of creatures loving, they would not have so much love in them as was in the heart of that man, Christ Jesus. Father, we need your help this morning. We want to see your Son. Give us attention to read your words well. Shape our minds to be able to receive what you reveal. Help us to marvel at Christ and to adore him. Now, I know I said I'd have all these passages on the screen, But the first one that we're going to go to is John chapter 1, and you've got to go there yourself in your own Bible. Come to John 1 with me, because I want to show you, and I want to start with the full divinity of Jesus. And I want to do this because there are tendencies in Christianity to see the Son as being less than the Father. It's really common for there to be Christian churches that are like, you know, we're more of a spirit church, we're more of a son church, we're more of a father church. You know, some churches make more of... God, but less of the Son. And so let's get the categories in place. And the category I want us to have from this is the idea that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same single God. Father, Son, and Spirit are the same single God. This is called the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity is not a Bible word, but it's a Bible category. So look at John chapter 1, verse 1 there. This is the This is the first thing that John wants us to know when we learn about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
This is very simple language, but it's making a profound claim. The word was God. And this word here is the Son. So flick down to verse 14 there, and we see that the word is the Son. Verse 14, the word became flesh, he became human, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the word's glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word here, this Son, is God. But then verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Son, the Word, is himself God. And he he came from the Father, full of grace and truth, verse 14, And he's in the closest relationship with the Father. Verse 18. He has the closest relationship with the Father because they are the same God. This is something that John thinks is a basic, fundamental thing to put right at the front of his gospel. The divinity of the Son isn't a sort of out of reach, esoteric concept that just intellectual people know about. It's for, for Christians, it's Jesus 101. This is the fundamental claim about Jesus. So John spells it out for us, okay? What does it mean that this word is God? Well, one example he gives us is that it means that just as we honour the Father as the creator of all things, in the same way we need to honour the Son as the maker, the creator of all things. See that in verse 3 in your Bible there, John 1 verse 3, through him all things were made, without him Nothing was made that has been made. You know, if you ask a child who made the world and they give you the Sunday school answer, Jesus did. They're right. All things, all things are made through him. Just think back to Genesis chapter 1. God created by speaking with his words. Here in John 1, through the word who is the Son, God created all things. Hebrews 1 has the same idea. Verse 2 of Hebrews 1, God's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. But not only has the Son made all things, verse 3 there, he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. Just as the Father creates and sustains all things by his powerful word, so the Son creates and sustains all things through his powerful word. They are the same God. Colossians 1 says it again. Colossians 1 verse 16. For in him all things were created. This is in Christ. In him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The spinning of every single atom, every heartbeat, every breath, every moment, it's held together, it happens, it exists because of the sun. Even the soldiers, as they crucified him, Even Judas, as he betrayed Jesus, even the very cross they nailed him to, Jesus sustained them. He held them together as they murdered him. The fact that the Son and the Father are the same God 
It means that if something's true of the Father, for example, that is the creator of all things, if something's true of the Father, then it's true of the Son. Eternally. Anything that's eternally true of the Father, that's always true of the Father, is, also, is essential to the Father, is also eternally true of the Son. Always true, essential to the Son. That's our, that's our overarching category here, because the Son is God. In eternity, all things that are true of God are true of the Son. Actually, creation isn't something that's eternal, is it? Creating the world is something that happens in time. The eternal attribute of God that enables him to create is is life. God has life in himself. So come back to John 1 again, and let's look at the attribute of life. John 1 verse 4, In him, in the Son, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We see this all the way through John's Gospel, actually. Because the Son has life in himself, he can give eternal life to us. You know, the Son can give life to whom he pleases. He's called the bread of life. He's the the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He says when he's praying, this is eternal life, that we know God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. John finishes his gospel by saying, these words are written that you may have life in his name. But John isn't just saying here that the Son gives life. He's saying that the Son doesn't rely on anything else for life. God exists eternally, fully self-dependent. He's independent of needing anything else. It's impossible to increase his joy, his happiness, his blessedness, his life. He is infinite and depends on nothing else. And it's because of his fullness of life that he can create our world from nothing and sustain us. Just as the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself and the Spirit. This is true of the Spirit also. The Spirit has life in Himself, and so in John 6, the Spirit can give life. This category I'm laying down for you, the reason that the Spirit, Son, Father, all have the same, all have the same eternal attributes is that they are all the same single God. Here's a mistake people make. They hear that the Father is God, and that the Word is God, and the Spirit is God, And naturally, they think it means we've got three gods. Like, I'm a human, you're a human, you're a human, three humans. It's an easy category for us to think in. It's natural. We're used to thinking that one human being equals one person. And so when we read about three distinct persons in God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we naturally think three beings, three divine beings. But God's actually revealing something to us very different than three gods. The Father, Son, and Spirit aren't simply three of the same type of being, you know, three divine beings with identical qualities. No, the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same single God. And you see this in John 10, really nice and clear. John 10, up on the screen, is a nice long one. John 10, 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they know me, uh, they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. Jesus is saying that that the Father is up here, high, exalted, above all. He's greater than all. And then he goes on to say, he finishes that bit saying, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So the Father's greater than all. I and the Father are one. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. When Jesus says that he's one with the Father, not just that they're both God, but that they're the same God, When Jesus says he's one with the Father, the Jews don't misunderstand him. They get it. What they don't get is how this human can be God. That's what they don't get. You, a mere man, claim to be God. But they fully understand that Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father. We'll come to how a human can be God a little bit later. See, they understand, though, that Jesus is claiming to be God Almighty, not just a God, but the God, and they don't like it at all. Do you know, a few, a few centuries after Jesus, a man named Arius tried to get a bit of an idea going. Actually, I think we're not 100% sure that it was Arius, but it's got his name labelled, stuck to it now, so it's Arianism. It's not Arianism, he wasn't a Nazi, but Arianism. And he'd look at John 1 and the ideas in John 1, and he'd, he'd essentially change it to say, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And he had this saying, he, he would say, there was a time when the Word was not, when the Word didn't exist. He thought that God created the Word first, and then created all things through him. But Jesus never claims to be anything less than the God He doesn't even claim to be an equal but different God. He says, I and the Father are one. You can see this so much more beautifully when it's assumed in passages. So assuming you've got that category in your head, the oneness of the Son and the Father, come and read 1 Timothy 6 for me, with me. You can read it for me if you want. No, read it with me. 1 Timothy 6. Um, I'll skim through the first bit. You men of God, flee from this, pursue righteousness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Uh, Verse 13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command. Without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. 
Amen. Here's the question. God, in verse 15 and 16 there, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is that? Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Is it the Spirit? They're the same God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are the blessed and only ruler. They are the King of kings and Lord of lords. They alone are immortal and live in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To Him, singular, singular Him there, because Father, Son, and Spirit are one, to Him be honour and might forever. Amen. Not convinced? Think it's talking about the Father? Come to Revelation 19. Read this. Keep that title in your heads, though, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw heaven standing open. This is verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19 calls the Word, the Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6 calls God the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's because the Father, Son and Spirit are the same single God. They're not the same type of being, they're the same actual being. Christians actually had to make up some words for this in the 5th century to describe the difference between Jesus' eternal godness and his created humanness. You get such weird ideas, you've got to make up new words for them. So they would say that the Son is co-essential with the Father. Essence, they're co-essential. But the Son is consubstantial with us. They just made these words up. But they share the same essence with the Father and consubstantial with us, same substance. They're such foreign ideas. So what does it mean that the Son is co-essential with the Father? I have $100. I'm the proud owner of $100. I imagine you have $100 too. But your $100 and my $100 are different cash. Okay, I don't own yours. You don't own mine. We both have our own $100. But my wife Katie and I, we co-own my $100. We are co-owners of that $100. It's the same $100. That's what co-essential is getting at. The father and son don't both just have a divine essence. They are the same divine essence. The son is eternally co-essential with the father. But with us... With the Son's created humanity, not eternal but created, 
the Son is consubstantial with us. He's the same type of being as us. He's a human, but he's a different human to you, just the same way that I'm a different human to you. When the Son's humanity was created, the population of our earth increased by one. But the Son's eternal existence as God doesn't add any number to how many gods there are. There is only one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When you can get the category of the Trinity in your head from the Bible, from the Bible into your head, the whole Bible can open up for you. Even a simple example is, is Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But when you read that through the lens of the Trinity, just as the Father exists from everlasting to everlasting, so the Son exists from everlasting to everlasting. Have a look at verse 4 there as well. All things are present to the Son at once. Verse 4, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. The Son is eternal. He is independent of time. It's the same for space. So in 1 Kings 18, after building a temple, Solomon prays to the triune God. He marvels. He says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built? The heavens can't contain the sun. Acts 17 has the same idea. The God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands. You, you can't serve the Son as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. This is not just the Father, but also the Son. Remember we did Isaiah recently? Can you remember who Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole world, whole earth is full of his glory. Who is that? Who is it that his, the train of his robe fills the temple and his glory fills the whole earth? Well, in John 12, Jesus says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So many passages through the Bible that we often just think that's, that's God the Father. We need to see the Son in them too. They are the same God. And so Christians confess that the Son is God from God. The Son is light from light. He's true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. When we worship Jesus, we're worshipping the Lord, not some demigod, not someone lower than the Father. We worship the eternal Lord Yahweh. So, what do we do when a mere man claims to be that glorious God? What do we do with the incarnation? 
Let's get the categories straight first, and then we'll marvel at the Scriptures. That, that creed I mentioned before with those made-up words, it points us towards this as well. When the Son became man, he did that without giving up any of his divinity. When the Son became man, he did it without his godness changing in any way whatsoever. You know, there's a view that Jesus did give up his divinity. You know, he's so high and exalted above the earth, but he, he left that behind and condescended to be born. And this idea, it's a, it's a heresy, but it's a biblical heresy. And it comes from Philippians 2. So it's actually a modern attempt to rehash an old heresy, an old wrong teaching about Jesus. There's nothing new about this. But Philippians 2, it starts with this great encouragement to be like Jesus and, and see other people better than yourself. And then he gets into describing Christ, who, being in very... Can we go back one? Oh, no, that's it. Great. Oh, yeah, second line. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, here's why I call it a biblical heresy. It's that phrase, made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. The, the first thing to note here, I, I think, just as an aside, is the difference between God and man. Compared with God, we are nothing. Relative to God, we are nothing. But the Son made himself nothing. Did he give up his divinity? Did he stop being God? Did he give away his divine attributes when he did that? Well, no. No way. It, first... If the Son gave away some of His attributes, then the Father has to give away some of His attributes. They are the same God. The Son can't give up His power without the Father giving up His power. They're the same God. Did He, did he detach Himself from God's essence? Did He decouple from God in some way? What's the language in verse 6 there? He's in very nature God. Did He strip Himself of His nature? Well, you've got to look at the words a bit closer. Look at verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by, is great, it explains it for us, by taking the very nature of a servant. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The son didn't cast off his divinity when he became a man. He took on, he added humanity to himself, human likeness. He remains in very nature God, but he added a second nature to himself a second essence, a second way of existing. Do you know, if you've got a full bucket, if you've got a full bucket in your hand, there are two ways you can get an empty bucket. You can tip out your full bucket, or you can just pick up an empty one. Two different ways to get an empty bucket, provided you've got two hands. Which one is Jesus doing here? Is he tipping out his divinity to become nothing, or is he taking on emptiness, nothingness? He's taking it on. He, it's not a, and it's not even a glorious humanness like he deserves. This is the one who occupies all dimensions of space and time. He has life in himself and is in the closest relationship with the Father. He should take on the most perfect human existence and rule right from the start. But he doesn't use his equality with God for his own advantage. He doesn't make life easy for himself. 
He doesn't give himself a human life free of pain and suffering. It's a humiliated humanness. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, And now the Son, having revealed his love for us in his humiliation, God has now raised him up so that we no longer simply call him that carpenter from Nazareth. We call him Lord in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is glory through humiliation, glory through our salvation. So the category that we have to use to understand Christ isn't that he gave up his divinity. No, we, say, we now say there are things that are true of the Son because he's God and those never change. He has life in himself. He inhabits all dimensions of everything. He sustains all things because of his powerful word. He knows all things, all things. He's equal in authority, power, knowledge, goodness, life, immortality, equal in eternity with the Father and the Spirit. They are the same God. He didn't tip that bucket out. But there are also now things that are true of him because of his humanity. The son gets tired. He gets exhausted. He gets hungry. He's ignorant of things until he learns them. He doesn't know, for example, when he will return. So in his humanity, in his human bucket, he has no knowledge of the date. Matthew 24 But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is true of Jesus' humanity. But in his godness, in his divinity, he knows all things. He has the same knowledge as the Father. I and the Father are one. You know, in his humanity, he has to look to his Father for guidance on how to act. What will I do here? What will I do there? And so he reads the Bible and he prays. And he has words from the Spirit, like the prophets did. But according to his divinity, in eternity, there's nothing he doesn't know. Nothing about you, nothing about me. There's not even anything about all possibilities that don't exist. He knows it all. He takes no guidance from anyone else. He freely wills to come to earth to die for us. It's a voluntary condescension not because of the will of another, but freely as God. The incarnation is the only reason that Jesus can say in John 14, the Father is greater than I. Verse 28, you've heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. There's no way that he can be talking about himself and the Father eternally because they are the same great God. All the Father's greatness is the Son's greatness. But when Jesus took on humanity, he took on our lowness. The Son's role in salvation, the Son's humanness, is lower than the Father's. But his divinity is not only equal to the Father's, fathers, it's, it's identical to the Father's. They're the same God. Having two natures, this is what enables the Son to be truly human. Not half God, half human, but truly God and truly human. He's divine according to one essence, one nature. 
and human according to the other. You know, sometimes parts of our identity modify other parts. So um, I'm, a, I'm a parent and I'm a man, and one of them modifies the other. You know, uh, being a man and a parent means I'm a father, okay? That part of my identity modifies the other. But other parts of our identity are independent of each other. For example, um, hair colour and fishing. If you're a fisherman, having blonde hair or black hair doesn't make you a different kind of fisherman. They're independent from each other. The son's humanity and divinity are independent. His humanity doesn't change his divinity, and his divinity doesn't change his humanity. And because the son has two distinct natures, natures with, which don't mix together, they don't modify or change each other, he can have a fully human experience of human life. He can die. The immortal one can die as a human for humans. And he can sympathise with us in our weakness against temptation. He couldn't do any of those things if he was superhuman, if he was simply a God-human. He is God and he is a human, but not a mixed-together God-human. So just like you and me, he had, to, he had to grow up. In Luke 2, it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. There was wisdom he didn't have, which he learnt and got. He had to learn. He had to submit his will to his Father's will, actually to the will of the triune God, his own divine will. Not my will, not my human will, but your will be done. Just like you and I have to struggle to submit our wills to God, he had to do the same thing, but he did it perfectly to the point of death. He gets how hard it is to obey God. As you read the Bible, and the Bible reveals things about God to you, it's revealing things to you about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They're the same God. Don't think that just because the Son died for you, He's the one who loves you. That Son is God. That, that love He has comes from God. The Father loves you and sent His Son. The Spirit uh, upheld the Son as He offered Himself for you. The Father, Son and Spirit love you because God is love, not just the Father, but the triune God is love. But second lesson, don't think because the Son is God that He's not really human. He's eternally no less than God, for sure, according to His divine nature. But according to His humanity, He's our brother. He knows our need. He saves and He can sympathise with us. He's the eternal Son. By nature, He's the Son, but because of his humanity, he can die for us that we would be adopted sons and daughters so that in 2 Peter 1, we can participate in the divine nature. We, through adoption, come to enjoy the relationship the son has by nature. So his father becomes our father in heaven who cares about every detail in our lives. I want to finish here with a beautiful quote from John Calvin. He's a 16th century pastor and theologian. Some people only know things they don't like about John Calvin and they spit on the ground whenever they hear his name, but he's the best. And um, here's a little sentence from him after he's been reflecting on the Incarnation. Here is something marvellous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet, he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. 
If you can dwell on this, on these things for the rest of your life, your life will be filled by the one who has life in himself. Let me pray. God, Father, Son and Spirit, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to you be honour and might forever. Amen. Well, I'm going to read to you now a creed which Ben referenced for us during our sermon, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, which expresses uh, the depths of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. Uh, The people who wrote this thought long and hard about who Jesus is, and for 1,500 years now, Christians have said this, believed this, to be what the Bible teaches us about our Lord Jesus. And so, uh, as we hear this, as I read it to you, this connects us with a rich history of Christian thought, of Christian belief about Jesus, of Christian worship of Jesus. So, I'm going to read this and then after we're going to stand and we're going to sing together, declaring together that it's in this Jesus that our hope is found. So let me read this to you. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to His Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Uh, Would you stand with us, and we'll declare that our hope is found in this Jesus.
In Christ alone my hope is found He is my life, my strength, my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm 